Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to American Muse Podcast, where we explore hidden secrets in the landscape of 19th and 20th century American orchestral music. Your host is Dr. Grant Gilman, conductor, violinist, and author based in Atlanta, Georgia. In each episode, Grant unearths a fresh orchestral work by an American composer you may not even know. And by the end, we hope you are a new fan of the composer and their music. Now, your host, Maestro Grant Gilman. Our guest today is Director of Orchestral Studies at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where he has been for over 20 years. He has guest conducted orchestras and opera companies all over the United States and the world and has traveled just as far to teach master classes, conducting workshops, and conduct student orchestras. More recently, he was appointed head of the Conducting Institute at the Miami Music Festival. Uh, in 2017, Oxford University Press published his book, The Beat Stops Here, to critical acclaim, and he is currently working on the eighth edition of The Modern Conductor. His premiere recording of the Gregory Spears opera Fellow Travelers, performed with the Cincinnati Opera in 2017, can be found on iDajo and Apple Music and Pandemic conditions allowing he will be on a podium in Cincinnati this season. Maestro Mark Gibson, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Grant. So this has been uh it's been quite a, a year to get back to to performing, I guess, at CCM. Um what what what's been different? Well we're we're one of the lucky ones. We worked very hard over the summer to buy a lot of uh, protective equipment and to prepare our spaces so that we could actually have an in-person orchestra. We were, are one of the few um, conservatories in the country that actually had a full performance schedule for orchestra and wind ensembles this fall. Uh, so the difference is, of course, everyone is wearing masks, so you don't know how unhappy they are. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm wearing a mask, so they don't know how unhappy I am. I, hard, I highly doubt that. Uh, and I've been, I've been on very good behavior these days. <laughs> no, I, frankly, Grant, it's such a pleasure to be able to make music even under these conditions. So we're all six feet apart. There are plexiglass shields, the HEPA filters in the room. But uh, I split our big orchestra into two orchestras of about 42 apiece. And we did uh, um, five pairs of concerts in the semester between the two orchestras. And... Uh, very successfully, I think. I'm very, very proud of our students. This new appointment with with Miami Music Festival, it's it's pretty recent, right? So so recent that probably the shutdown altered the entire first year of teaching. Well, it, the second year. The first year was, was fun. The second year we went online. I had four or five um, students. Uh, we, we did score study, uh, which is the best thing. Um, you know me and score study. I mean, craft you learn craft you don't learn. i can show people tricks uh what 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 a student of mine calls the toys 
But mostly it's, do you understand the score? How do you really look at a score? And when you're not in front of an orchestra, that just gave us the chance to really go very much in depth on everything from Rite of Spring to, to uh, Sibelius II. Um, and even some members of the orchestra, we invited members of the orchestra to participate in the sessions as well, because I think it's important to know how the oboist feels or how the horn player feels, even how a violist feels, Grant. Even yes. those people, yes, even them. I went. I went there. Yeah. <laughs> so as far as this coming summer, uh, I'm in discussions with Michael Valsi uh, about what we're going to do. There's a Mahler 7 beckoning if we're able to get together. And uh, we'll, we'll see. You know, my basic philosophy is dread one day at a time. So that's what we're doing. I mean, th- th- I mean, that makes sense, you know, in the best of times and, and now, especially in the worst of times when, when we started this season in, in Alpharetta, I mean, I implored the board that we can't control what's going to happen, obviously, and we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. So we can make plans and go ahead with them and then change them when, when some external force forces us to change the plans. And then when that happens, then, then sure, we pivot and pivot quickly and come up with another plan. But otherwise, we just go forward as as best we can until we can. Pretty much that's what we've been doing. I had two different sets of repertoire. If this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do this. Um, but what was, what, you know me, programming is like my, my thing. And... Uh, it's always interesting. Whatever we do is is interesting, and uh, that's that's the objective to keep it fresh for the for for everybody. So we actually actually very have a very exciting season planned for the spring. You know, we do Piazzolla Four Seasons and Faya El Brujo, which for me is a great pairing. Uh, we do a Mendelssohn concert. We do have a diversity concert with works of Anthony Davis and Brian Neighbors, Gabby uh, Lena Frank. There's nothing limiting us. We just can't do Mahler, which even that is not true. We did Wayfarer songs in the fall. All right. So now going full 180, let's go go away from Germany, <laughs> all of all of Europe. Uh, let's talk about Gershwin. So Gershwin, probably most well known for for Rhapsody in Blue, American in Paris, Summertime, Porgy and Bess. Less known, of course, is the Concerto in F, written in 1925, commissioned by Walter Damrosch, after he premiered, after he attended the premiere of the Rhapsody in Blue. Considering that Gershwin actually conducted the Concerto in F himself, unlike the Rhapsody in Blue, which was orchestrated by uh, Ferd Graffa, what does this piece show about Gershwin's composition abilities that the Rhapsody does not? Well, it shows him in a large form. The Rhapsody and the Rhapsody in Blue and the second Rhapsody are short pieces, 20 minutes long. The concerto is a is a is a big piece, and it shows thematic development and transfer transformation over the three movements. I'm I think it's a very impressive work, and I love doing it. Very hard work to program. Because uh what do you do with it? What do you put with it? Um it's also obscenely expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a thousand bucks. But uh, the last movement of Gershwin Concerto in F is like, everybody goes crazy for it. You need a, a killer trumpet for the second movement that you do. Now, I was going to ask about that. You've probably heard 
I mean, how many hundreds of, if not thousands of auditions over the years, that trumpet solo, it shows up on so many major auditions. What is it about that solo that is so difficult? And and what does it potentially reveal about the player to the audition panel? A great question. First of all, it's really long. It's not it's not like da 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 the, the high C in Zarathustra. It is a long solo. It's both high and low. Requires a an, un, an unusual timbre. I usually have trumpet uh, have a, a whiskey bag, a bag on the end of the horn, which makes it even more difficult to play. Um, it, it is it, it is demanding in every sense. And when I have done the piece. I literally have it as a stand-up solo. I ask the trumpet stand. Interesting. Um, because it, it should have that effect. I believe in the visual effect of the trumpet just kind of rising and, st- and start playing. It needs a particular kind of vibrato, wide, slow. And that's not what a lot of classical trumpeters are playing to do, uh, trained to do. So considering that that this this concerto in F, of course, is like like you said, more of a complete piece. It's a it's a full full range of a piece rather than the the rhapsody in blue being you know singular in form. Why is it that we hear it less often? Is it is it the length? Is it the difficulty? I don't find that it's that difficult for the pianist. Uh, for the orchestra, it's even not that tricky. You do need the trumpet player, um, but generally, a pianist of that stature is probably going to want to play one of the more standard works. If you put, if you're doing a pops concert, you got the, the, the orchestra is going to ask for Rhapsody before they ask for concerto because concerto is a 40 minute piece and that's devoting more than they want. And let's say in a standard pops concert, it really is a peculiar animal. If you're going to do a piece of that substance, Many orchestras would rather do Age of Anxiety, let's say, uh, Bernstein, which is a more, even a more serious piece of music. Um, I think that there's still a stigma about Gershwin that he's not really taken seriously enough by some people. I do think it's a great piece. That's interesting. I don't know if I'm aware of that that stigma. I mean, I could see how that, that could happen. but on a, on a classical program, and again, on Pops concerts, you're going to hear it all the time. Um, but even... Even his orchestral suite from Porgy, Catfish Row, is not done as often as it might be because it's not as flashy as other arrangements of tunes from from Porgy and Bess. Not to mention now the problem of whether or not we can even do Porgy and Bess uh, uh, in the current cultural climate, uh, which which is a whole separate issue. I mean, we are, are we prepared to shelve one of the truly one of the great American operas because it's an opera about the black experience written by a white man. But those are questions that are arising now and the questions we have to take seriously. It's probably, it was probably a good question a long time ago too. And it's not, it's not a new one for that particular piece, but yeah, obviously right now it's going to get more attention if anybody mounts it and doesn't consider that beforehand I mean, how they're going to package it, how they're going to present it, how they're going to, you know, talk to people about it before it even gets on the stage. Exactly. It's a matter of context. Um, uh, I'm dealing with a piece by Bizet, Jamila, one act opera about a slave woman, slave girl. And the music is too great not to do, but it must be put into a context. You can't just say, this is a, this is not about, about a slave, about slavery. <laughs> 
So moving to another stalwart of American composers, Aaron Copland, of course, on his own is most notable for his Americana compositions, openness of sound, inescapable depiction of the great wilderness. Additionally, the clarity of character leads itself so well to ballet in which he had significant success as well. The rhythmic angularity and dramatic fanfares, all good elements for the acrobatic choreography. In his Billy the Kid ballet, there are explicit programmatic depictions, but in your experience with this piece, what is the overall sentiment and effect of the work? What, why has it had such a strong and long-lasting draw on the audience? <laughs> this is a, I'll tell you a funny story about this. The first time I programmed it at CCM, we did a series called, called American Voices because I think it's important to perform music by Americans. Because at CCM, we have a lot of students who are foreign-born. They don't know our music. And in fact, the first time we, we performed the piece at CCM under my baton, the concertmaster was a woman not from the United States. And she came up to me after the first reading and said, Mr. Mr. Gibson, what is this terrible piece of music we're playing? <laughs> I said, this is Billy the Kid. This is one of the great pieces. This is one of the all-time classic American works. She said, it's a terrible piece. <laughs> which just made me want to do it all the more. I've brought the piece to Munich. I've brought the piece all over the world. It is, Copeland tapped into a language that is related to folk song, that in, in, in fact involves folk song and folk dance um, and a very brassy instrumentation, orchestration, um, the, 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 the solo trumpet passages in Billy the Kid just speak about about American band music and about the American West. Um, I just find that he he hits a very sweet spot. The piece itself was very influential. If you, I've mentioned uh, Bernstein and the Age of Anxiety. Lenny's uh, On the Waterfront is Billy the Kid inverted. Um, Billy the Kid starts out on the waterfront is it's literally an inversion of it. So the the motivic ideas, the intervallic ideas of Copeland affected everybody after him. You know, a, another contemporary, of course, of, of Copeland and Gershwin, Samuel Barber, wrote a ballet as well, originally titled Serpent Heart, retitled Cave of the Heart. Um, loosely, ba- I think there was even another title. I can't remember. Um, loosely based on the myth of um, Medea and Jason, uh, a collaboration with Martha Graham and her company. The darkness and drama of the piece seemed to fit perfectly with her style of movement, like you know, the torso contraction, etc. Uh, Barber later derived Medea's meditation and dance of vengeance from this ballet, a piece which you know quite well. Uh, what part of the story does this excerpt? portray and why might Barber have picked this particular part of the narrative to highlight? Medea's dance, uh, Meditation and Dance of Vengeance, uh, does a little bit um, to Cave of the Heart what Lenny's uh, Fancy Free did with On the Town. It takes some themes and then transforms it into a little bit of a suite, also on the waterfront. So the narrative of the orchestral dance, Medea's Meditation and Dance of it, is not the narrative of the ballet. What's curious about the ballet is that Martha Graham commissioned Copeland for Appalachian Spring, Barber 
for Cave of the Heart. He commissioned she he commissioned uh, she commissioned Minotti. She commissioned Della Gioia. She commissioned a whole mess of great works for an instrumental ensemble of around sixteen. The, the orchestration for Cave of the Heart is quite small, and she created these works, which is to, to absolutely to her credit. The the orchestral piece, Medea's Meditation and Dance of Vengeance, takes motives that are uh, of all the characters in the piece. Jason, Jason has a particular motive. The princess has a motive. Medea, of course, has several motives. But that rousing finish um, in, in the orchestral work does not exist. There's no such climax in the ballet. Uh, the ballet ends in, in a kind of piano traumatic post-homicidal thing, which is for 1946 was extremely powerful. Um, perhaps when Barber was writing the orchestral version, he was channeling more, let's say, Don Sacral of, of Rite of Spring that builds up to this ecstatic thing. And then in, in, in the Stravinsky, she dies. Um, in, in Medea's Dance of Vengeance, I mean, the vengeance was about Jason's betrayal with the princess um, and the, uh, the uh, Medea's subsequent act of, of killing her children, which is vengeance. But that, that sound in the orchestra work does not exist in the ballet. I, I, I uh, find that the, the transformation in the big orchestra work is, is overwhelming. And he's able to do something with orchestra that would have actually been too much for the dance, I think. Certainly too much for what Martha Graham was looking for. Right. Um, so the the narrative of the orchestra piece is different than the narrative of the dance. So so it's it's interesting. I mean, those those two pieces, of course, are connected mostly by by Martha Graham herself. I mean, Appalachian Spring was was only produced two two years before. The, the cave of the heart and and of course with for copeland of course that's it that's his magnum opus as far as we're concerned maybe he didn't think that but uh it's certainly what we hear most of the time now it was a meal ticket for <laughs> that's right that's right it, is it possible that because martha graham is that that connection did she potentially see something mirrored in herself between those two pieces, I mean, it's it's like you said, it's a it's a striking dichotomy between them. That Appalachian Spring is very, um, it's very clear what the image is with the music and with the dancing, but there's not a lot of drama. And then by contrast, in the in the barber, it's it's all drama. It's 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 bloody. It's it's disgusting with drama. It's it's just you know. And but but Martha Graham comes up with with this choreography to fit both of them perfectly. Is that, how is that possible? And, and, and I mean, is it something to do with her or is it, or is it just because she was that good as an artist? She was that good as an artist and she, she's not unique in that. I mean, Balanchine had certain signatures, but he was able to compose ballets and dances for ensembles, for small groups. Um, Appalachian Spring is a more of an ensemble piece than, than, than Medea's. Medea is certainly a smaller group. The other unifying factor between the two pieces is Isamu Noguchi, the designer. He only designed two sets for Martha Graham, and they happened to be Appalachian Spring and Medea. Um, and they fit his, his 
designs are very simple. He's kind of in his biomorphic phase by the time he gets into the barber, but it's very angular uh, constructions in the Appalachian Spring. It's important to me because Noguchi was one of my favorite artists. Um, a great artist like Martha Graham didn't look to repeat herself. She had a style of dance, but looked for stories that she could tell with people's bodies and gestures that were not the same as other stories. And the rap on Copeland, Grant, I might add, is that he did he did get a reputation for writing the same piece. <laughs> Until later, he, he found a serial style to his credit. Now, having taught at CCM for about 22 years, is that right? 23, but who's counting? 23. Well, somebody is. Um, you've likely seen and been a part of many phases and developments of the music industry. When I was your student, it didn't seem that there was any new appreciable controversy, but the same ones that persist today, including that of content focus. So, I mean, from my perspective, we tend to learn and teach, and I do it too, around a small number of composers from a short time period, geographically limited to a compact area of Europe. The benefits from this are great, immense even, uh, to immerse ourselves in in the absolute best quality of music ever written. However, it does limit our initial education for finding other composers, music, even styles that are not as easily accessible. I remember during some class sessions, you would sit down at the piano and play from memory, Arias and experts from operas and composers none of us had ever heard of. And I don't doubt that you do that to this day. And in all likelihood, we will never experience a live performance of any of these pieces, maybe even the composers. Is this a state of higher education damaging long-term to the preservation of composers and their pieces that were not as popular during their time, have not gained notoriety since, and are unlikely to be unearthed with any kind of revival like atmosphere in the future? Or is is the education of the musicians not the issue at all? Maybe that reality stems mostly from outside interests and changes in audience taste? I think that this is a large systemic problem, and it is a problem. I was just writing to a colleague about this. In, in my next book, which is called On the Rebound, there's a chapter called Endangered Species, um, which is precisely about this, that there are pieces in the repertoire that we are going to lose, that we are losing. Operas like La Gioconda or André Chenier, because we don't have the money to produce them, we can't find the voices to sing them. Orchestral works like Chante Rossignol or Stravinsky, which is one of my favorite pieces, but it has no impact. The Valse Noblesse Sentimentale of Ravel. We can't do it because it ends softly. We don't, audiences don't want that. And now we have extra pressure to expand the canon for composers, uh, mid 20th century, uh, black composers like George Walker, Julia Perry, Florence Price. And then the next generation of composers, be it Missy Mazzoli or Julia Wolf or Brian Neighbors. So what, how do we make room for the canon? And on top of it all, but audiences' attention spans are shorter, programs are shorter, and frankly, musical literacy is not what it used to be. So even works like Webern, like the Opus 6 of Webern, we can't do anymore because people don't understand the language. I don't think that that problem either stems from or is solved at the conservatory level. My job is to teach the broadest spectrum of music possible for the broadest constituency possible. That includes Haydn, 
because you got to do Haydn 103 because it's the greatest symphony ever written. You got to do Tangents of George Walker because it's a fabulous piece and my orchestra ate it up. You've got to do Anthony Davis. He won the Pulitzer Prize this year, last year, 2020. You've got to do this music. You have to do Gabriela Lena Frank's Peregrinos. You have to because it is an important cultural statement and also it's frankly beautiful music. Um, I have no solution to the larger trend of culture in America. All we do is teach music, more music, better, the better music, the better, and try to expand musical literacy that way. Uh, you know me, I, do, I won't compromise. And I have very eclectic tastes. I'm just as happy to do the title music to the Seahawk as I am to do notes from the underground of Anthony Davis as I am to do a Mahler five. Right. What I won't do is Telemann, and that you can tell your listeners. <laughs> there, there's a line in the sand, and it would be George Telemann right there. I said it. You know, I, I'm going to challenge this a little bit, not with Telemann, but you did say, I remember, it, I'm sure it was an off year. It was an unfortunate year, but you seem to have had to, uh, because it came up in the rotation, you had to put in Shostakovich five. And I remember talking to you about it and you were like, Grant, I hate that symphony so much. <laughs> and I did not conduct it. I know. I know you didn't. Now, did that happen again this year? Because I thought that I saw on the program this year that there was Shostakovich five. No, it happened. We did it two years ago and my colleague, Ikai Pong conducted it. There are just a few pieces I don't conduct. I don't conduct front D minor. That's why I have a colleague to conduct those pieces. <laughs> that's good. Because that's good for everybody else that does like it. I actually did write an article this year called The Case Against Shostakovich 5, which if I actually published it, people would kill me. <laughs> but I can go on at some length about why, and I adore Shostakovich, but the fifth is 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 a is a terrible lie, and the fact that he wrote it to save his life doesn't make it any less of a lie. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, that makes sense that that we we take it for granted. I mean, that it, it is anybody that doesn't know the perspective of the rest of Shostakovich's music would say, "Oh, that's a perfect example of Shostakovich." There it is, right there, the Fifth Symphony. The problem is, of course, as you said, like if if nobody's heard the fourth symphony, or anything that came, or any of the chamber music that came much later, then then you don't realize that that is that it's not a one off, but it's definitely the beginning of all the one offs that were not really him, and and like you said, it, 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 the reason it it was so palpable, it is so palpable, is because he was writing it to please people so that they wouldn't take him off to Siberia in the middle of the. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, if you want to talk about peaks like the Tenth Symphony, that's another ballgame, which I do gladly, and which which is one of the great spiritual experiences. Um, but the Fifth is a piece I won't do. But that again, that doesn't mean that our stu students shouldn't do it. I just won't conduct it. Well, you've you've earned that right to do that now. <laughs> and the rest of us have to we have to conduct it enough times to get tired of it first. And well, then... <laughs> as you probably remember, I mean. Uh, I will often ask a prospective st or a student, what, 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 who don't you like? And they'll say a composer and I'll say, well, that's the next person you're going to work on. I don't like Sibelius. Okay, fine. Then you're going to do some. <laughs> I had a student who said he didn't like Bizet Symphony in C. It was the next thing he conducted. Oh man. 
So there well, you have it. By the way, I'm thinking of the Piazzola. You conducted that at Spoleto. I did. And then only a few months later at CCM. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. It's been like 12 years. It's time to bring it back. It's a, I think it's a great piece. I did it in Korea a few years ago. Enjoyed it very much. Yeah. With KBS Symphony. Yeah. The, uh, Piazzola, I think it's a lot like these American composers that he's from one place studied in another and then he sounds like nothing nobody else right and it sounds great yeah i will not disrespect mr copeland i like aaron copeland's music there you have it uh, that's obviously uh, uh, uh an unpopular statement i don't know <laughs> well, you know i i'm with duke ellington if it sounds good it is good right period and a lot of Copeland sounds really good, particularly if you got a good brass section. That said, the third symphony is a piece I probably won't do again because it is so hard to put together. And it's one of those weird symphonies, Grant, where it actually gets harder as it goes on. So the last movement, after the first three ones, which are almost unplayable, the last movement has the fugue in it. And then the violins are like, mm, no, I don't want to play anymore. You know, now, th now that brings up something. I, I just thought of this. That what I don't know. I don't know Copeland three very well, but but I know what you're talking about. On the other hand, I do know pretty well Rachmaninoff second piano, uh, second um, symphony. So it, it has a similar like fugue element at that one moment where it was my only professional, semi-professional percussion uh, debut uh, was also in Spoleto, where. I was just waiting the entire movement for you to give that downbeat. And I played the bass drum. Um, yeah. Right at the beginning of it. And every time I played it, the, the actual percussionist that was there, he kept saying he would lean over and say, you know, lean into it, like really hit it. And I was like, dude, he's like, no, 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 no. Just, just hit, go all the way to the floor through the, through the drum. I was like, Dude, I'm hitting. What do you want me to stand on it, like uh, on a stool or something? Anyway, that was a lot of fun. But um, my my actual point is, or question is, really. So we take something like that, like that fugue from that symphony and that whole symphony, which musically is is rich and full from beginning to end. And then, of course, so that makes it outrageously difficult just in that regard and then technically it has moments of absolute ridiculousness getting close to Mahler uh, maybe Mahler level but really Wagner opera second violin part level yet nobody is going to say oh well you know it's one of those hard places so you know maybe we don't do that piece of course we say if we can do the piece we do Rachmaninoff second symphony however we go to Copeland three and we say well, you know, it's got those difficult places and uh, I don't know, maybe the audience wouldn't get it. And then we make up a bunch of excuses. Is it is that related to the fact that Copeland is less well known? Not everybody knows. I mean, people may recognize the name, but they're probably not going to know the piece if you're just an audience member. I I would look at it differently. The Copeland, the last movement, the fugue in the last movement, Copeland three is high and it's exposed and it never sounds good. The fugue in the second movement of Rachmaninoff two is is cake next to the Copeland three. <laughs> the the piece that you really want to avoid is is Matisse der Mahler of Hindemith, which is so great 
but I rem- okay, so he- I remember doing it at CCM because my colleagues in Munich said, you got to do this piece because it's it'll change your life. So it's a great piece. But I remember the violins, the first violins at CCM turning to the last page and they just started laughing. They didn't even bother <laughs> because it's high and then it's an octave above that. And they just, they were just laughing. They just, well, you got to be kidding. <laughs> there are pieces like that. But even in the Hinnemit, you can hide a little bit. In the Rachmaninoff, you can hide a little, little bit. In the Copeland, the last one, the Copeland three, there's no place to hide. It's totally exposed and it's very awkward to play. The As much as I love Copeland, Copeland three is not my favorite piece. And if you really want a terrible comparison, Grant, put Copeland three next to Shostakovich 10. And Shostakovich is going to win out because he was, in terms of craft, oh my gosh, what a great composer he was. Right. No, I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, uh, I mean, this entire podcast is based on this particular area of American composers, but I'm not, I'm not hiding, you know, any of my own thoughts and saying, you know, okay, I compared um, in a soon to be released episode. Uh, I'm going to talk about Horatio Parker and his Northern Ballad, a uh, Northern Ballad, which first of all, even though he was definitely composer pro pro-American composer and, you know, all Boston all the time. Um, A Northern Ballad is about Scotland. It's not about any kind of like American or North American anything. It's just about Scotland. But anyway, um, it is exceedingly close to, to in style and in sound sometimes and put together like Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet overture. And so I just put it into the podcast that way. I, I show the comparisons and 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 it all in a respectful way. And so I speak very highly of the Parker and, and we're going to perform it in Alpharetta, hopefully, in, you know, in a couple of months. But at the end, I admit and fully willingly, I'm putting these two pieces up against each other and I'm only really talking about the Parker, but I'm never going to say that the Parker is better than the Tchaikovsky. The Tchaikovsky is still better. It's still a much better piece. I'm still going to go away from that experience 99% of the time being being elevated you know, because of that experience. But I'm, you know, I'm talking about this other piece because nobody knows it and it's also a good piece. I again, I think you're absolutely right. It is a Park was a good composer. By the way, just in Fourth Symphony, that makes a claim to be the great American symphony. But again, this is a whole repertoire from the 50s and early 60s, late 40s that we are completely losing um, because it's being replaced so quickly by other musics. Even a piece, even Michael Torkey's Ecstatic Oranges, Orange, which is one of my favorite pieces to do, is a piece that's vanishing. It's only from the 80s. Great piece and a very influential piece, I might add. Um, I taught a class in, in, in Bernstein this past uh, this past semester, we started to look at the mass, and I said, "I we just I can't look at the mass because I don't think it's that good a piece. It is so dated, and it's I'm sorry, maybe you want to cut that out. No, Lenny's dead, and I studied with Lenny. Were I with Lenny right now, I'd say, Lenny, it's not that good a piece. Songfest, great piece. Khalil, great piece. Mass is it makes you cringe, Grant. But there are timeless pieces in American music. Parker." is timeless. There's some great music there. And, and Walter Pisson, there's some great music there. So what you are doing to, to bring this particular period 
is, is, is I think very important. We have to respect our musical heritage, our patrimony, matrimony, um, because there's a lot of great stuff there. And it has to be put into context as well with like abstract expressionism, which comes out of the 50s and the whole social movement, Ben Shong, visual artists that, that Copeland knew and the Piston knew. Um, only then can we have a real respect for who we are as American artists. Part of when, when I first started down this road, I, I was, I am always aware of this, this historical reason for, or for one possibility, why a lot of this has gotten lost, even as um, the world has moved forward in technology and communication and all of these other things and, and availability of music and, and to be able to listen to it and listen to so many pieces, infinite amount of pieces. Um, whereas before it wasn't automatic. Um, but understanding the fact that by the time America got going, either there slightly before it became a country or, be, or even right when it became a country, pick a, pick a time. It doesn't matter. Europe had been around so much longer that to compare the two evenly to look through the same lens at the music, at the culture, at the art from each place separately and to say, well, this sounds all of this American stuff from the early, you know, from the late 19th century sounds so European. And to say that that's an insult, I, I never got that. I was like, why is that an insult? I think that's a, I mean, maybe it's not a compliment either, but that's what else was there? There was nothing yet. I mean, they were so very little removed time wise from Europe anyway, the, you know, the bloodlines, the people. And then, Finally, like you said, in the 50s, roundabout, that's when finally there was a new sound. And then, of course, that sound got, there was another new sound and then another new sound. And now, just like the rest of this country, it's it's a big melting pot for the better. But to, 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 to not consider that historical perspective that we're just younger, I mean, you know, not me, but, but like the country is younger, that, 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 that culture that art is going to take more time it's going to take more time to be universal per se if it ever is exactly the same thing happened in the visual arts i mean john singer Sargent, one might say was derivative of, of european painting but the fact is that his craft was so extraordinary at the turn of the 20th century and going in uh, what what we look for are, are great artists whether they're great painters or great composers gershwin was a genius. Ravel stole from Gershwin, for goodness sake. Ravel, one of my very favorite composers, he stole the G major concerto from Concerto in F and Rhapsody in Blue. What we lacked as Americans was just, as you say, time and experience. And uh, it took a time to, uh, to uh, develop a cultural identity, which was informed by jazz, which Europe never had at all. This is the, the, the wild card that makes so much American music and American art great, great, that makes it stand out is, is jazz. Um, the, uh, and, and Europe, <laughs> I can tell you, I've conducted symphonic dances, of, of Lenny symphonic dances often enough with orchestras in Europe and in China to tell you that swing does not come easily if you're not American. <laughs> <laughs> with all due respect, I'm saying with all due respect. 
but you know what? I, I do have an anecdote that's 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 to that point and also showing the other side of it. Um, uh, Ken Lamb, of course, you know, he said he had this. He had, he said that he had gone to a um, when we were both at Peabody. He went to a Baltimore Symphony rehearsal, and it was Tarakanov rehearsing, and they were doing Rhapsody in Blue. And, and he said that like when they started rehearsing the beginning of it, he was being very picky and cutting them off and saying, no, 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 this is the style. No, 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 this way. No, 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 this way. No, 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 no. It's got to be more swung like this. No, it's got to be more bluesy like this. The Russian that pretends like he can't speak any English was the one training the United States Orchestra in present day how to do the blues which which shows that you know he probably was right. I mean, I wasn't there, but he was probably was right about every single thing he talked about, and and he was maybe maybe they weren't going from nothing the Baltimore Symphony, but he was definitely helping it be even more in that style. So that style, even though maybe it started here, is universal in its its ability to move us, just like anything that sounds European from that very small you know, time period and, and region that we, we teach from all the time. It's universal. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the, he had to immerse himself in it. Tony Papant right. was the same way. Tony is a great musician, a great conductor because he immerses himself in the style of every piece that he does. The, the conductor's job is, is we're chameleons in that regard. I, I tried to conduct every piece with a different physical language and a different sound language that's as appropriate with that with that composer. I do a lot of Chinese music. It has a different kind of vibrato, a different kind of slide than Tchaikovsky. And that's that is our job. It's to, to Merkinov's credit that he immersed himself in Gershwin style enough to do that. Right. I know other com- conductors who foreign-born conductors who did not take the time to do that. So Yeah, I don't want to be one of those. More more credit. Well, yeah, I mean. It's one of the reasons I do a lot of, I, you know, I, you know, I teach and conduct a lot in China. Right. Um, I bring American music to China. I bring Chinese music back to the States. We are ambassadors of the world in that regard. Sometimes you bring the tenors back too. Ah, yes. <laughs> Grant, sometimes we guess right. I, my, my, te- my job as a talent scout is purely based on sometimes I guess right. <laughs> I think that the entire business of Major League Baseball would agree with you. <laughs> it is just, yeah. And then sometimes you guess wrong. <laughs> well, you got to learn from that and hope it's not too public. <laughs> I, I've learned recently that I've been reminded recently that my job is to make my students better than I am, which, if you have any ego at all, is a terrible objective. But well, uh, you don't have that problem, so I do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I didn't notice. Okay, my mother, may she rest in peace. When when Zhang Shen made her debut with New York Philharmonic, my mother says, So, why aren't you conducting? Why is your student conducting the Philharmonic and not you? (laughs) Why is Jing Wan on the cover of your book and not you? (laughs) Literally, that's what she said. Doesn't look like you at all. (laughs) that's That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> Ming Wan at CCM when you were there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, she is now principal conductor of, of the Guangzhou Symphony. She's the first woman to be principal conductor of a major orchestra in China. I heard about but that. The last time 
I was there, I was conducted a concert and Kirsten and I were there. Um, she takes, she said, come up to my office. She, you know, my office, I'm underground. So okay. She has a rooftop office with a garden. <laughs> I remember well, she was rehearsing the orchestra and it was, I stopped in the rehearsal room and she saw me there and she said, awkward. <laughs> I, ran. I ran out of <laughs> awkward. That totally makes sense. It was pretty funny. That's pretty good. So, cool. you know, that's, I'm so blessed to have uh, students who have gone on to do so many different and interesting things. And that's what I do. You know, conducting an or a great orchestra is a beautiful thing. But teaching, man, that's something very special. Yeah. And you're part of you're part of that. You're part of the, that family. Trying to live up to it. Yeah. <laughs> Keep working at it. Yeah, no. I'm 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 on the case, as they say. Well, Maestro, thank you so much for joining me. Um, next time I'll bring it to you, and uh, and we'll make this a a live action kind of thing. You are welcome as the sun. <laughs> Thank uh, you. What we are, I will tell you that what we are doing at CCM this year is pretty unique around the country. And uh, many schools are following our lead, but it's it's to the credit of my colleagues and my and our students that we are able to do something that is very rare this year, make live music in the pandemic. And by the way, out of 116 um, musicians in our orchestra and in the organization, the GAs, no one got infected in the fall. Wow. We only got infected with the love of music, baby. Oh. <laughs> <Here's> well, <come. laughs> you have been uh, in lockdown quite a long time, haven't you? Help <laughs> <laughs> me, somebody release me. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I think you, you said that uh, when you first got into your office down there in the basement, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> It says abandon hope all ye <laughs> in a place with no windows. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. And uh, good luck. Good luck you with everything stay, to come. Stay well, and the family should stay well. And, you know, let's just keep the music alive. All right. Thank okay. you, sir. Appreciate it. If you like what you have heard and want to support the advocacy of American orchestral music, please consider signing up to donate regularly at patreon.com for our continued production of this podcast. Also, subscribe for updates wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.